Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fode, and this Best of Authors on Tour podcast was recorded live at the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute. It's time to begin. History is a sled of lies agreed upon. Uh, I am one who uh, spent 40 years in the corroded rectum of the two-party system. Someone who uh, worked for three presidents and had direct access to, uh, access to three presidents of the United States. Uh, and despite my uh, Western attire, don't kid yourself, I was a Washington insider for 40 years. Uh, I preferred English tailoring martinis in the better watering holes in Washington, D.C. And I have seen the underbelly of American politics. And therefore, I have to tell you that uh, at a certain point, it became very clear to me that the odds were overwhelmingly if the U.S. government told you something, it was overwhelmingly possible or even likely that that was a lie. The government didn't tell us the truth about uh, Castro in Cuba. They didn't tell us about uh, the, Bay of, the truth about the Bay of Pigs invasion. They didn't tell us the truth about John Kennedy's assassination. They didn't tell us the truth about Watergate or Vietnam. They didn't tell us the, diff- the truth about the Central Intelligence Agency running drugs in, in Asia. They didn't tell us the truth about the assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan. They don't tell us the truth. Uh, and therefore, um, there is, I don't like the word conspiracy, but there is a cone of silence uh, in the mainstream media uh, that tells us a narrative history that in many times is bogus, is not the truth. Now, I wrote a book uh, last November called The Man Who Killed Kennedy, The Case Against LBJ, in which I made a compelling case using uh, motive, means, and opportunity, fingerprint evidence, eyewitness evidence, and deep Texas politics to prove that Lyndon Johnson had more to gain from the murder of John Kennedy than one el- anyone else. And in fact, he was the linchpin of a plot. We never use the word conspiracy. That did involve the Central Intelligence Agency, angry about Kennedy's uh, botching of the Bay of Pigs in their view, angry about the Cuban Missile Crisis and the fact that we, the Americans, actually secretly withdrew American missiles from Turkey and Italy which the American people weren't told about for 40 years. So that story you've told about that you've been told about the Cuban Missile Crisis, how brave dashing John Kennedy faced the Russians down and they blinked. Folks, that's bunk. We made a Boston style political deal. Nikita Khrushchev took the Kennedy boys to the cleaners. We had no on-site inspections. We have no proof that their missiles ever left, but they were allowed to verify that our missiles left Italy and Turkey. And that was that was classified for 40 years. Organized crime, they had a they had a seat at the table. You see, Ambassador Joseph Kennedy got one million dollars from the Chicago mob for John Kennedy's election, and in return he agreed not to have the Kennedy administration pursue the deportation of Carlos Marcello and Santo Traficante, two of the biggest gangsters of the time. Well, you know the story. Old Joe is incapacitated with a stroke. Bobby went after the mob after a deal had been made, and they had a stake in John Kennedy's murder also. And then there's big Texas oil and their oil depletion allowance. Lyndon Johnson was their chief water carrier in Washington. But John Kennedy already announced he was doing away with the oil depletion allowance and it would cost the right wing Texas oil men hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, so uh, 
anyway, I, I uh, was not reviewed in the New York Times or the Washington Post, but the book became a New York Times bestseller anyway. Brian Cranston, who uh, starred in uh, Breaking Bad, who's also on the Broadway show uh, all, the J with, all the Way with LBJ, told the New York Times the book he studied to try to get down Johnson's character was my book. Make no, no, make no mistake, Lyndon Johnson was a crude, vicious, uh, mentally unbalanced, sadistic, epically greedy, drunk, an abusive individual uh, whose own aide said behind his back likened him to Hitler, Stalin, and pointed out his mental instability. The, the airbrush version put forward by the Lyndon Baines Johnson taxpayer financed a library is a falsehood. Lyndon Johnson stole his first election to the U.S. Senate. He stole the 1960 election in Texas for the Kennedy-Johnson ticket. And Johnson's right-hand man, Bobby Baker, the secretary of the U.S. Senate, on the day of John Kennedy's inauguration, 1961, a very cold day, according to U.S. Senate sworn testimony and Justice Department testimony, said John Kennedy will not live out his term and he will die a violent death. So my book on Richard Nixon is in many ways a sequel because it is impossible to look at the politics of the 50s and 60s and 70s and not recognize that four men, John F. Kennedy, Lyndon Baines Johnson, Richard Milhouse Nixon, and Hubert Horatio Humphrey all wanted to be president at the same time. And three of the four of them became president. My book is in some ways a biography of Richard Nixon, but it is not a love letter to Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon had uh, is uh, is the most compelling and kind of interesting figure of the uh, of the 20th century. First of all, he is durable. He is on the political scene for 40 years. He he resurrects his career no less than three times. So my story, my book is the story of the rise and fall and rise and fall and rise and final resurrection of Richard Milhouse Nixon. Talk about resurrection. Jesus Christ only pulled that off once. Nixon is nothing if not resilient, but he's a paradox. He is brilliant, but obtuse. He is bold, but hesitant. He has enormous confidence in his own abilities, but he is paranoid. He is endlessly manipulative. He is calculating and smart. He is above all disciplined. Is a Nixon you don't know. Nixon can't read music, but he can read the saxophone. He can play the saxophone, the clarinet, the piano, the violin, and the accordion. And he's actually quite good at all of them. He has an intimate knowledge of wine and a terrific wine palate. He has, in his post-presidential years, one of the finest wine cellars in the eastern United States. He's a near-vegetarian who carefully watches his diet. He exercises an hour and a half a day. He is extraordinarily focused. To understand Richard Nixon, one needs to understand the 1960 election. That's the election in which he very narrowly uh, is edged out of the White House by John F. Kennedy. And the story that you've been told about that election, most, uh, most likely by Theodore H. White's book, The Making of the President, which was a very important book because it changed the whole way that political presidential politics was covered by journalists, White was a, an idolizer of the Kennedys. They were sophisticated, charming, dashing, good-looking, intellectual. And good old Richard Nixon, he was square, boring, middle-class, middle-class values. He was middle America. Uh, he was yesterday. Kennedy was tomorrow. Well, the truth of that race is far more complex. 
First of all, on the back of this book, you see an appendix of every poll taken from the end of 1959 to the, uh, to the uh, election of 1960. And you'll see it is never a runaway race. It's always within two or three points. In 1958, the Republicans have the most ignominious defeat since 1928. They lose more governorships, more congressmen, more senators, more state legislators. The party is at its lowest ebb going into the 1960 election. Nixon has the superior stature. He's eight years as vice president of the United States, and he has some high points. His debate with Khrushchev, in which he very cleverly sticks his finger in Khrushchev's face just in time for the AP reporter to flash it around the world, telling him, no, capitalism is superior to communism, and we will bury you, in essence. He goes to Caracas, and his motorcade is stoned by communist-led mobs. He is literally completely covered in spit from an angry mob. They come within minutes of smashing in the windows and lynching he and his wife. And when a Secret Service agent draws his gun, Nixon says, put that away. So he has superior stature to John Kennedy. And then he makes a series of truly enormous mistakes. First of all, he pledges to visit all 50 states. Now, the reason he does that is because the Kennedy-Johnson ticket has an advantage over the Nixon-Lodge ticket in 1960 because the Kennedy-Johnson ticket can have it both ways on civil rights. John Kennedy can can run as an advocate of civil rights with his running mate, arch-segregationist Lyndon Johnson, the man who, who opposed and killed every piece of civil rights legislation. And in the 1957 bill, which liberals like to point to as his crowning achievement, he drops a poison pill that says if you're accused under the law, you'll be tried before a state, not federal jury, state meaning all white. John, the only reason... Lyndon Johnson embraces civil rights when he's president is to avoid a challenge at the 1964 Democratic Convention from Robert Kennedy. If Johnson is such a great lover of civil rights, why do all of the civil rights activists oppose his his selection as vice president by John F. Kennedy? In fact, Johnson blackmails Kennedy is on to, blackmails Kennedy to get his way on the ticket. John Kennedy already selected Missouri Senator Stuart Symington. He'd already offered him the job and he had accepted. Poor Symington's in his room drafting his acceptance speech. When Lyndon Johnson shows up at John Kennedy's room with Sam Rayburn, he wants to meet with the senator alone, doesn't want Bobby Kennedy there. Then he shows Jack Kennedy a portfolio of photos of Kennedy naked with women, courtesy of J. Edgar Hoover, and says, uh, you can either put me on the ticket or I can give this portfolio to Dick Nixon. This is how Lyndon Johnson becomes vice president. Now... The fact that, the, that Johnson is a segregationist ends up holding the solid South in a very close election. And therefore, Nixon can't decide. Is he going to pursue African-American votes in the Northeast, the big states like Michigan, Ohio, California, New York, Pennsylvania? Or is he going to try to invade the Deep South for the first time? He's met with record crowds in Atlanta. He can't decide which way to go, North or South. So in the end, he goes neither. And he makes a stupid pledge to visit all 50 states, meaning he's spending time in places like Alaska and Vermont and Wyoming that he has locked up. Meanwhile, John Kennedy stays focused on the Big Ten. Then he has a a terrible stroke of bad luck. He agrees to a series of debates. We can argue that that is in itself an enormous mistake. He's better known than Kennedy. He has more stature. Kennedy is elevated just by appearing on the same stage. But then, two weeks before the debates, Nixon bumps his knee on a car door and it becomes infected. He's hospitalized in Walter Reed Hospital. He's there two weeks after Labor Day. If you look at the polls, it's the only time John Kennedy pulls out to a lead. 
Nixon comes roaring out of the hospital, still on antibiotics, still running a fever against his doctor's order. He hits five rallies on his way in five different states on the way to Chicago. He arrives in Chicago exhausted, 15 pounds underweight. When he shows up for the lighting check, he wears a light gray suit, and they say his complexion matched his suit. John Kennedy gets to Chicago early, spends the day on the roof with two hookers getting a suntan. Kennedy understands that it is style and appearance that will matter in the debate. Nixon believes it'll be based on substance. Those who hear the debate on radio say that Nixon has prevailed. Those who see it on TV overwhelmingly say that it's an enormous Kennedy victory. They go to the, to the lighting check, which is kind of like the weigh-in in a prize fight. And the CBS makeup man comes to Senator Kennedy. He says, Senator Kennedy, will you be requiring makeup? No, Kennedy says, no makeup for me. Nixon, of course, hears this. Mr. Vice President, will you be requiring makeup, he says. No, Nixon says, no makeup for me. Whereupon John Kennedy goes to his dressing room where his private makeup man flown in from New York makes him up. Theodore White said he looked like a bronze god. Richard Nixon writes in his own memoirs, I'd never seen Kennedy looking so fit. The other thing we don't know, John Kennedy has an injection of methamphetamine in the throat one hour before the event because John Kennedy is a methamphetamine addict. John Kennedy is being treated by Dr. Max Jacobson. Kennedy's other doctors want Jacobson thrown out. They think he's a quack. They want to know what's in the injections. Kennedy is addicted to methamphetamine, a proprietary uh, uh, potion put together by Dr. Feelgood. Ironically, among Dr. Feelgood, Dr. Jacobson's uh, uh, patients, is Frank Sinatra, Leonard Bernstein, some of the most noted artists and actors, politicians. Jack Kennedy even, rec- uh, pardon me, Frank Sinatra even recommends uh, his treatments to uh, Vice President Spiro Agnew. Spiro is high half the time. So in any event, the debate is a disaster. Nixon's advisors beg him to have makeup. He refuses. So he puts on a product called Beard Stick, which is meant to cover your 5 o'clock shadow. The problem with that is, under the television lights, his makeup begins to run. It's so bad that Nixon's own mother calls his personal secretary, Rosemary Woods, immediately after the debate and says, Is Richard unwell? Mayor Daley, watching on TV with his cronies, the head of the Chicago Democratic machine, he turns to a crony and says, Nixon's not even dead yet, and they've embalmed him already. But here's what they don't tell you. There wasn't one debate. There were four. And while some historians will tell you that the debate audience for debates two and three was much smaller, which is correct, the debate audience for debate number four was every bit as large as debate number one. And it was the foreign policy debate. And by all critics' uh, measure, it was the debate in which Nixon did best. Nixon also hoarded his money for the last 30 days. He knew Joe Kennedy and his, uh, and his uh, bootlegging fortune uh, would m- meant that the Kennedy's funding was unlimited. But he hoarded his money for the last 30 days, and then he unloaded. And therefore, in the closing days, Nixon outspent Kennedy on radio and television. And then finally, Dwight Eisenhower comes off the bench, enormously popular. He goes to New York, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and Los Angeles. And he laces into Kennedy, calls him little boy blue, says he's unqualified to be president of the United States. He draws enormous crowds. 
Nixon knows that his own polling shows that he has pulled ahead in the close. He's made up for those enormous errors in the beginning to pull into a slight lead. Kennedy's television has been on for months. It's stale. It's old. Everybody's seen it. Nixon's coming on in the close. That's why he gets to Los Angeles content knowing that he has won this race. And, folks, he did win the race. The presidency is stolen from Richard Nixon, not just in Chicago, although there's enormous detail in my book about that where more people voted for Kennedy in some precincts than were registered to vote, a mathematical impossibility. And, of course, the deal that Joe Kennedy made with Giancana and the boys in the mob is there's voter intimidation going on in Chicago. You're told how to vote. No one dares show up and vote wrong. But the real vote, the real voter threat, the, the more stunning voter theft is in Texas, where Lyndon Baines Johnson, the champion vote stealer of all time, is in charge of the count. So what does a ballot look like in Texas? I'll tell you. It's a paper ballot. There are no machines. And all the candidates are listed. The Republicans, Nixon and Lodge, the Democrats, Kennedy and Johnson, the Prohibition Party candidate, the local independent candidate, the vegetarians. There's nine candidates on the ballot. In order to vote, a voter is supposed to cross off the names of those they are not for and leave untouched the names of they are for. So in the counties controlled by Lyndon Johnson, if a voter circled Nixon and Lodge, that vote is disallowed. And because Texas has no recount law in 1960, those ballots are burned within an hour of the counting. Lyndon Johnson leaves no evidence of his crimes. Now, we know that 46,000 Nixon Lodge ballots were thrown out in Dallas County alone. Pardon me, 56,000. But the Kennedy Johnson ticket only carries Texas by 46,000. So when you say, well, Stone, you work for Nixon, he was paranoid. You know what? You'd be paranoid, too, if the presidency was stolen from you by a millionaire gangster and his lightweight son. Folks, John Kennedy didn't write Profiles in Courage. He didn't even read it. John Kennedy was eloquent. He didn't write his speeches. When he read them, it was the first time he read them. Richard Nixon wrote his own words his entire career. At least the first draft of them and the last draft of them. So one can understand the resentment that sows the seeds of Watergate. Nixon practices without question the politics of resentment. And in the end, the politics of resentment destroy him. But the great tragedy, Richard Nixon, is that in Watergate, in the ashes of Watergate, we have completely obscured his accomplishments, and they are many. He ended the Kennedy-Johnson War in Vietnam. Now, liberals like to say John Kennedy was on the verge of withdrawing us from Vietnam, not according to Robert Kennedy in an oral history right after his murder, not not, not according to the documents. I remain to be persuaded of that. But while Nixon does actively step up the bombing, he uses it to cover to withdraw all of our troops. By the time he leaves office, all of our men are back from Vietnam, men and women. He opens the door to China circumventing the Central Intelligence Agency and the State Department and the Defense Department, where he knows that that the hardliners will oppose his peace initiatives. And then he he uses the new relationship with China to scare the crap out of the Soviets, who suddenly have an interest in arms control reductions. We have two significant arms control agreements with the Soviets that make this world safer and save Americans hundreds of millions today, billions of dollars. He desegregates the public schools without violence or bloodshed. He gives us the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the original Environmental Protection Agency before it became the behemoth that it is today. He gives us our first actual environmental protection in this country. Now, he makes egregious mistakes. He ends the war in Vietnam. He also ends the 18-year-old draft. 
He gives us the 18-year-old vote. Most importantly, he saves Israel from complete annihilation in the 1973 war. At Yom Kippur, the Syrians and the Egyptians mount a surprise attack on Israel. Israel's caught with their pants down, shall we say. And their back is against the wall. They appeal to Washington for help. Kissinger's against it. It would just provoke the Russians, he says. The State Department, they're against it. Don't get involved, they tell Nixon. Nixon orders the military lift, airlift of $121 million worth of, of military supplies, twice what the Israelis asked for. And when two days later he learns that the airlift has not begun, he personally calls the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and chews his ass. That's the tape the Washington Post doesn't want to play for you. Everything he, that can fly, he says. I want everything we have that can fly. Now, if you listen to the White House tapes, Nixon says repugnant things about Jews. But he also saves Israel. Again, the paradox, the contradiction of Richard Nixon. In any event, we now come to the matter of Watergate. I think it is very important to recognize that the hardliners at the Pentagon, the Central Intelligence Agency, the Joint Chiefs, military intelligence, they think in the election of Nixon they're getting an unreconstructed coal warrior. They're getting the ultimate hardliner. They're shocked that he wants to get us out of Vietnam. They are, they are uh, shocked that he opens a, a, a relationship with the Chinese behind their back. And they're particularly upset about the arms control agreements with the Soviets. As early as 1969, the military begins spying on Richard Nixon in his own White House. A naval yeoman named Radford begins copying secret documents out of desks, files, burn bags, even Henry Kissinger's briefcase. The joint, and they go directly to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Thomas Moorer, a rabid anti-communist and an extreme right-winger. But before they get to the Admiral Moorer, they make a quick stop at the desk of General Alexander Haig, deputy to Henry Kissinger. Haig is really the bad actor of Watergate because Haig ultimately becomes Nixon's chief of staff. And his real loyalty is not to Nixon. His loyalty is to the what would eventually we would call the neocons. They try, actually, as I reveal in this book for the first time, to assassinate Nixon twice in Miami. And both times the plots fall apart for the same reason that they participated in the assassination of John Kennedy, because they want to end his peace policies. They like endless war. And in fact, once Nixon leaves office and Ford becomes president, Dick Cheney and, and Donald Rumsfeld cut the knees of Secretary of State Henry Kissinger off. Kissinger has the title, but he no longer has the power, and shortly he resigns. I'm convinced uh, that there were a number of things going on in Watergate at the same time. One of the most important ones to recognize is that the Central Intelligence Agency learns about the Watergate break-in, which is the brainchild of John Dean, facilitated by Nixon aide Jeb Magruder and implemented by the famous G. Gordon Liddy. Now, I was a little late getting here because I had to go upstairs. John Dean's new book is out contemporaneous with mine, and I had to go move it to the fiction section where it belongs. <laughs> this book is a cover-up. Mr. Dean has airbrushed himself out of the narrative of Watergate. He says that if you want to read about his role in Watergate, read his book, Blind Ambition. But when questioned about blind ambition under oath, and 
and confronted about the discrepancies between his book, Blind Ambition, and his sworn testimony, he says he didn't write Blind Ambition. First, he blamed it on Taylor Branch, his ghostwriter. Then he blamed it on Alice Mayhew, his editor. In fact, he says in that interview, under oath, I didn't even, never mind writing it, I didn't even read it. He says that this book is based on 362 new transcripts that no one has seen, that he had transcribed. Okay, let's see them. Oh, he says, no, they're mine, they're secret. Well, his friend Stanley Cutler, the famous historian who brought the lawsuit to release the Nixon tapes, he got caught red-handed taking two conversations, two tapes, reversing the order, conflating them to make Dean look better. Caught red-handed. Why should we believe Mr. Dean? Here's what I do know. He completely truncates or omits his conversations with Nixon of March 13th, 16th, 17th, and 20th, preferring to focus on his famous cancer on the presidency. If you'll listen to those tapes, you'll hear John Dean manipulating Nixon into the cover-up so he can cover John Dean's crimes. John Dean is the case officer for the Watergate break-in. How could he forget to say that he's the one who destroyed the contents of Watergate burglar E. Howard Hunt's safe? How could he forget to say that he was the one who dangled executive clemency in front of Watergate burglar James McCord? How could he forget to say these things? Here's the truth about Watergate. John Dean is the man who planned, pushed, and covered up the Watergate, largely because he was interested in the Democratic National Committee's use of a call girl ring that they were using for uh, assignations with prostitutes for high-level Democrats who were coming to town. And Dean was specifically interested in those records because his wife had an association with that call girl ring. Now, there's a new book out by Phil Stanford called White House Call Girl which further bolsters what I just told you with more and more documents. Mr. Dean has been living a lie for 40 years. 15 years ago, when this was first written, he filed a lawsuit. That lawsuit, he keeps saying, was settled. It was not settled. It was withdrawn. Why is his wife's testimony, why are parts of her testimony sealed? Why are all the documents sealed? I'll tell you why, folks. She's a hooker. That's why. And I confronted him in this. In, uh, at the Texas Book Festival. You can see it online. You can go to YouTube. It says, uh, I think it's Roger Stone smacks down John Dean for on C-SPAN. Take a look. He won't answer these questions. He th- says that he'll sue me. Here I am. Truth is the ultimate defense. I only wish Mr. Dean would make good on his threat. And then finally, the true story of Watergate will unravel. Why would the Nixon's men want to break in when they were 19 points ahead of McGovern on their way to a 49-state sweep? There is no good political reason. Here's the one thing Dean does achieve in his book. Nixon never knows who broke into the Watergate. He doesn't know who gave the order. He keeps asking, and nobody will tell him the truth. Not Bob Haldeman and John Ehrlichman, his top aides. Not John Mitchell, his best friend and attorney general. Not Chuck Colson, his hatchet man. Nobody, Not certainly not John Dean. John Dean learns that the White House is receiving uh, transcripts of the Watergate bugs two days after the break-in in in June of 1972, and he lies about this to Nixon and says that there's no White House involvement for nine months straight. It is not until the 17th that he finally tells Nixon, oh, you've got a problem. Why? Well, because the Senate Watergate Committee is now trying to subpoena Mr. Dean, and he realizes his crimes are about to be exposed. And therefore, he wants Nixon to, uh, to assert executive cl- uh, uh, privilege to stop his testimony because he does not want to go to jail for his own crimes.
And then there was a fiction of Bob Woodward and all the president's men. We had to move that to the fiction section, too, sadly. Woodward Bernstein and the mainstream media narrative of Watergate is a grotesque distortion of historical truth. There is no Deep Throat. Deep Throat is a confection. He is a, he is a uh, literary device because Woodward and Bernstein are receiving illegal grand jury testimony. The grand jury is leaking. That's a crime. Just last week, Newsweek reported that among the papers of the producer of the movie All the President's Men, Alan Pakula, they found further evidence that there was no Deep Throat and that the grand jury was leaking. Mark Felt, the guy who comes forward and says he's deep throat, he's not deep throat. He's probably a source, not a very good one, because by the time the Watergate thing unfolds, he's already been kicked out of the FBI, and he's no longer in the flow of information. But because Ben Bradley, who I think most of you saw died just the other day, said in an interview there was no deep throat, that there was nobody moving flower pots, meeting in garages, that none of that ever really happened. Uh, Mr. Felt is a is a is a convenient device for Mr. Woodward. Mr. Woodward has suppressed his own central intelligence uh, and intelligence community background. He has suppressed the fact that he was a military briefer for Alexander Haig. He says he didn't meet Haig till 1973. That's a lie. So that narrative is uh, is the convenient narrative, but it is not the truth about Watergate. Let me finish by saying uh, that. Uh, some of you may know that I have on my back a, a tattoo of Richard Nixon about the size of a grapefruit. Floats between my shoulder blades. Uh, and it is not an ideological statement. It's not even a political statement. What it is is a daily reminder that in life, when things don't go your way, when you suffer defeats and disappointments and setbacks... When things look bleak for you, when you're discouraged, you have an obligation to get yourself up off the ground, dust yourself off, and get back in the game. That is the story of Richard Nixon. It's a story of persistence. It's a story of resilience. It's a story of tenacity. It's a story of drive. It's a Greek tragedy because he's both very great and very flawed. But it is time for a historical uh, revisit to Richard Nixon because as President Bill Clinton himself said at his funeral— let the days of judging Richard Nixon on anything other than his entire record be passed. Nixon himself writes, one cannot appreciate the majesty of the highest mountain until one has been in the deepest valley. And then most famously, a man is not finished when he is defeated. He is only finished when he quits. Thank you very much. That's all for this Best of Authors on Tour podcast. I'm Darren Fode, and this podcast was recorded live at the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks for many more authors as we podcast Authors on Tour. <laughs>